You're listening to the Our Eerie Podcast with Marty Wachugu and Lydia Laith. We're here to amplify community voices and bring new perspectives to the conversation. We are unpacking Eerie and America's baggage. And we're speaking truth to power. Let's talk. Okay, so you're listening to Our Eerie uh, with Marty Nwachuku and Lydia Laith. This is the lovely voice of Lydia Laith. I am a 28-year-old white woman with blonde hair with roots that are starting to grow in that are still kind of like dirty blonde. Um, and I have blue eyes and some makeup on and a white turtleneck and a yellow and gray flannel. And um, I'm all layered up. And I have a blue tapestry behind me. I really like that flannel. I was meaning to ask you about it. You can borrow it. It is so you fitting want. for you. No, it fits you perfectly. I couldn't rock it like that. Um, oh. This is Marty Wachuku. I am a 29-year-old Nigerian-American Black person. The reason I say Nigerian-American is because I like to give tribute to my heritage. Um, but I am a Black woman. Um, I have Black and white braids in my hair and a headset that is white on my head. I'm wearing, um, I think, tortoise, short, tortoise shell glasses that are black and white. Um, I have no makeup on, and my eyebrows are, like, pretty thin. They also shave off the ends of my eyebrows, and it makes me kind of feel cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, just so, uh-huh, when I put on makeup, it just makes it easier. Um, I'm wearing what I call a grandpa sweater that I found from the thrift store that's gray and white, as well as a black t-shirt that says made in Nigeria that has a barcode that's green, white, and green, which is the Nigerian flag. And underneath is my birthday, January 28th. Um, And behind me is is my favorite piece that I've had since college is my tapestry, which is blue and yellow. Nice. That's awesome. Okay. And then tell everyone about your nails that you got going on, fancy pants. Yeah. I've only in my lifetime probably got my nails done maybe five. No, that's a lie. But nails with acrylics mm-hmm. five times. And I've been wanting to, now that I'm feeling like I'm getting ready to get back into the world, feel nice and treat myself. So I got some press-ons because I don't want to spend the money for the nail salon. And they're like these purple matte light pink things. And I feel fancy. I feel older. Uh-huh. cool. I feel, <laughs> I, I, I'm doing a lot yeah, of you like, gotta do a lot of with, with your hand modeling. Yeah. <laughs> And now I'm like, okay. And I bought stuff to learn how to do my own acrylics, but press-ons are definitely a game changer for like, they have really fancy ones. So like if you're going to a wedding or something, mm-hmm. buy yourself some press-ons and be done with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you, you, something, you know, oh my gosh, they're so embarrassing right now. So I did like last week and now they're like total crap now. Uh, they're like, it's this like light pale pink nail polish that's now been chipped on like every edge. So it's just like little dots of pink left on my fingernails. So it mm-hmm. looks pretty bad. Um, I haven't even looked at them actually now that that's so funny. I wasn't even paying attention until just now. Um, but yeah, they're looking pretty rough. But there is, there's something like about whether it's what we put on. Because I also like my boss kind of jokes with me because some days I wear like the weirdest stuff that like I wear like silk pants to work that could be pajama pants um and like I'll just wear random stuff and like but when I put on clothes that are like professional and when I do my nails or when I wear nice shoes or do my makeup like you just feel I don't know like more powerful or more confident or more sassy or whatever um then there's something about like I don't know sometimes when you don't feel your best but then like you put that effort and you put that time into just your and not like in a 
in a superficial way, but like you put that time into yourself and like really, um, yeah, just like give some love to yourself. I think there's something there. When I have a really sharp cat eye, I'm like, don't try me because I will cut you just like how sharp <laughs> this eyeliner is. <laughs> you can't tell me anything if I have sharp eyeliner and a red lip. And now that I have press-ons, I'm deadly. Yeah. Okay. World, watch out. Don't mess yeah. with me. You just mm -hmm. say, yes, ma'am, and do what she says. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. No, I think it's it's great. I wonder if we should have other, like if anyone can send us some other ideas of like things that they do when they want to feel confident. Mm -hmm. Like I know some, for some people it's like high heels, like when they put their high heels on and they can hear that like click, click, click on the floor. Like that's when they know like they're large and in charge. For um, some men, a suit, like wearing a tie uh -huh. like on a sports coat or a suit and a tie. Uh -huh. Yeah. Like what is it for you all that you do when you're like, when I want to be a like a boss ass bitch, or, like badass, like what am I doing? What am I wearing? What am I listening to? Like, that's another thing for me is like, it's less about appearance, although it is like a little bit, but for me, it's like, what music am I listening to right as I pull up to the township meeting? Like that's when like, you know, whether I'm ready to be nice or whether I'm ready to like fuck shit up. Do you um, turn your music up or do you only make it so you can hear it? Oh, it's loud all the time. People probably hear my music bumping or like me scream singing along to my music <laughs> if they're like passing me. I thought I've like recently become aware. It never occurred to me until truly like a couple years ago that like people can hear my music and me singing outside of my car even though my windows are rolled up like i uh -huh. in my head i was always like oh they can't hear it unless i roll my windows down and then i'm like oh wait but i can hear people's music when they drive past my house and it's loud and their windows are up so like people can definitely hear me um so that's now also changed my perception of like so when i roll up and i know i'm ready to like fuck shit up like <laughs> other people probably know that i'm like listening to like and the patriarchy or whatever uh, <laughs> listening to rage against the machine fuck you i won't do what you tell me listening to <laughs> it on blast exactly. up like to me. fuck the police right like I just, <laughs> like you know my vibe yeah. um so yeah so that's that's a revelation for me to like process for myself uh but yeah, I, I love, I would love to hear what other people do and then maybe experiment with some things like, okay, this is what you do to get like in your badass vibe. I want to try that out and see how, how it works for us. Um, and next week, maybe we'll read some of your, we'll shout you out and read some of your, um, what you do to feel good and powerful. Yeah. So send that's those a great in. Idea. Yeah. Send those in, send it, put, you know, tag us on social media comment on our posts or send us a direct message like let us know what you do to feel large and in charge which i recently started saying a lot more i don't know why i keep saying it large and in charge it's because my boss asked me what kind of chair i wanted for our office and i sent her one she's like lydia you know this is like for like extra large men like they made this like chair that like can like accommodate like 300 pounds and i wanted it because it just looked big and comfy and i was like but then i could maybe like sit like you know crisscross applesauce in the chair and like it'd just be large and She's like, Lydia, this is like made for like people like two or three times your size. And I was like, nah, man, I'm large and in charge. This <laughs> chair is made for my size. I am massive and powerful. Yes. But, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, speaking of large and in charge, we're excited today to be joined by um, a friend and fellow community organizer, Ethan Hayden, um, who uh, along with us, Marty and I, um, started with some other folks in the community, participatory defense. So uh, we'll take a break real quick. We'll come back and we'll be joined by Ethan.
We are here with Ethan Hayden, a friend of ours and uh, a co-conspirator in a lot of good community organizing. Uh, Ethan's part of Erie County United and has um, been a, a founding member of Erie Participatory Defense, which is a group that Marty and I were both a part of. Um, but Ethan, before we get started, uh, Marty and I always start with like describing ourselves. So for listeners, um, just give them a sense of who you are, kind of what your physical description is, and then we'll kind of dive into who you are as a person. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm a 37-year-old white dude with short brown hair and a modest brown beard, um, sitting in my home office wearing a, a kind of drab brown uh, jacket. Excellent. I like a modest beard. I think Buster would be very jealous of your beard for the record. He's been really trying to grow a beard, so you'll have to share your uh, your tips and tricks. But that's great. Um, so yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do for um, like professional work, but also what do you do kind of in your free time? Who are you for, for folks that don't know who you are? Sure. Yeah. When, when people ask what I do, I typically say I'm a musician. Um, and usually the first follow-up questions are, um, what instrument do you play and are you in a band? Um, first question is I play trombone. Uh, I'm also a sometimes a uh, singer and a lot of the work I do also deals with like electronics and electronic music. Um, and in terms of like playing in a band, I play in several, um, most of them based in Buffalo, uh, chamber music ensemble called Wooden Cities, a duo called Faulty Tower, and a music research group called Null Point. But I also do like, you know, teaching, um, both, you know, in, in school. I've done, uh, I've taught at colleges and in private studios, and uh, also run a small, uh, eerie based record label called Infrasonic Press. Nice, nice. And uh, if people are interested in looking you up, um, on the socials or on like a website do you have a website or social media where they can follow kind of your your musical work yeah sure uh i have a website which is just ethanhayden.com um and then uh, the record label has a website which is infrasonicpress.com awesome awesome okay well yeah let's talk a little bit about participatory defense because that's where where we know each other from can you tell us a little bit about what participatory defense is for folks that aren't familiar and then how you got involved with the group when it first started. Sure. So um, participatory defense is a community organizing model for people facing charges in the criminal legal system uh, and or their families uh, and communities and, and anybody who wants to support them. So uh, we aim to impact the outcome of individual cases and then also transform the larger landscape of power in the court system. And so ostensibly, it's a support group for those who are affected by the criminal legal system. And when I say support group, I mean that in the common sense of the word, in that we offer like emotional and community support um, so that nobody has to go through the process of moving through the legal system alone and facing charges alone. Uh, one of the things that's, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about, about the criminal legal system is that it's very deliberately designed to be isolating and disempowering. Um, so we work towards ensuring that people feel supported rather than isolated. Um, 
But in addition, as the name participatory defense implies, that support is broader than just uh, emotional support. It's also aimed at empowering individuals and families to literally participate in their defense and actively fight for their freedom or their loved one's freedom. And this could entail, um, you know, we help folks identify what point they are in the legal system or where their loved one is at in the legal system, help them establish communication with their public defenders or defense attorneys, and just offer whatever insights we have so that they can make the dehumanizing system see them as human beings with agency and families and support and friends and colleagues and all that stuff. So yeah, so that's what participatory defense is. But um, as some of you may know, some of you might not know, um, Ethan, Marty, and myself were all part of like the organizing founders of participatory defense. And so I want to talk about how each of us got connected to the group. And so maybe we could start with like Marty, then go Ethan, then myself, talk about um, how we got involved in participatory defense, what kind of drew us to this cause. And um, yeah, we'll start with that. Yeah, for me, I can't remember if Maria Gellner um, came to one of the Erie County United meetings or if she emailed me initially, but Whatever, whatever the case may be, we had a one-on-one -on -one and she told me about her background and what she was trying to do and how um, participatory defense was sort of like organizing in the criminal justice system, which I hadn't really had any experience outside of just being aware of what's going on um, in the, you know, the prison industrial system. Um, I had no experience, so I was really interested in it. So um I think we had another one-on-one -on -one with Antonio and I was like, okay, let's, let's do it. Let's get this off the ground. And I have poor memories. So I don't remember anything beyond. I was like, okay, so I know there are people who would be great for this space. So I think I reached out to you, Lydia and you, Ethan, mm -hmm. and that's where my story kind of ends there. Yeah. Yeah. Ethan, you want to talk, take over from there? Like what happened next for you? Yeah, sure. I mean, as a, I'm a very, baby organizer like i haven't um been you know particularly active um until fairly recently but um you know like so many people um summer 2020 was like a real catalyzing moment for me like i'd always been interested in progressive politics and did a lot of things in my art and music practice that would be like um you know supportive or would, would point towards or or resonate with you know different um, activist causes or whatever, but in terms of like actual, like, you know, on the ground organizing, um, that kind of started summer 2020 in the wake of the, you know, George Floyd protests and things like that. And so I started getting really active around, um, policing and, uh, issues with the criminal legal system or criminal punishment system. And, um, and so, yeah, that's how I got in touch with Marty and ECU. And, um, we were doing some various, uh, organizing things around policing in Erie that summer. And then, um, yeah, Marty, uh, mentioned to me that, um, Maria and Antonio were interested in starting this group. Um, and so it seemed like something that I was absolutely interested in. And so I said, yeah, please sign me up. That's awesome. That's so cool. When you said baby organizer, though, for a second, I was like organizing like little baby. And I just imagine like a protest of like little infants walking around. <laughs> anyway, that was stupid. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think similarly, I um, since college, like ever since I learned about the concept of privilege and like really started to dig in and be aware of like the systemic disparities in like so many of these 
places that we like hold to be like unbiased, whether we're talking about science or the criminal legal system or education or whatever, like um, I've just always tried to utilize my privilege and my platforms to like confront that injustice and um, particularly being aware of like my racial privilege and understand like white privilege and knowing that there's things that I can do and say to disrupt the system that other people maybe could not get away with without like really significant um, social um, or like truly like physical consequences. Um, and so that's always kind of been my my motivation and like how I got connected to Erie County United long ago, not long ago, but like a while ago with like around immigration issues. And then, yeah, and then Marty reached out and was like, hey, I think you would really like this this group, it's called Participatory Defense. Like you should meet with this um, woman, Maria. Like she's the one spearheading all this connection, blah, blah, blah. And I like immediately was just like, yep, like sign me up, whatever I can do. Like put my body on the line, like let's go there, like build community support. I think it's just so important. And I love, um, I love the intersections that I see in a lot of community organizing work and my own personal perspective on like social work and trauma work for myself because a lot of my experience in trauma work has been about helping people find the answers to their own problems like in themselves right that like the trauma work is about like you know what you need to heal and i just have to give you the space and time to process enough of it to figure it out for yourself i'm not here to give you the answers and i'm like same with social work like i'm not here to give you the answers i'm here to give you the knowledge and skills to like have the answers for yourself and figure out what you want for yourself and i feel like participatory defense is like very much aligned with that. That like, it's not about us coming in and having all the answers or telling them what to do. Like we explicitly say like, we're not your lawyers. We're not giving legal advice. We're not here to tell you what to do. We're here to help you understand where you're at, what your options are, like have the most information and resources to make the best informed decision. And then we just wanna support you through that, whatever that looks like. Um, and, and it's about like leveraging the community knowledge, right? That like so much of our problems are built in isolation. Um, you know, and another reason I'm connected to like the criminal legal system is through my work with um, men convicted of sexual offenses and previously incarcerated men that I used to work with. And so understanding that the system was already unfair and unjust to them um, and and wanting to, to change that and wanting to like support that it's, yeah, this was just like the, kind of like intersection of so many different callings that I felt like tied to. Um, and so I just, I love it. I love participatory defense. I couldn't sing its praises enough because I think it is such a powerful model for bringing people together and and really using community resources and knowledge and like really basic skills that like we just have to remind people that they have or that, that they can use um, to like really shift an entire system. I mean, like to really buck a unjust system and it doesn't have to be from the top down like we've talked before about like how frustrating systemic policy level change can be because it takes so long and it feels so like impossible sometimes especially when we have elected officials that like are so antithetical to like everything we believe in um and so to see our ability to like okay well the system doesn't have to change like we'll figure out how to work in this unjust system and still like be successful and still find you know success in that so yeah, I'm done rambling about it, but it's just great. And I love it so much. And I love you guys. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I think all that stuff you said is like, is really important. And all that that stuff about like top down versus bottom up. I mean, a lot of times what, what top down misses is that there are like folks who are suffering now mm -hmm. and that can't necessarily wait until 
after the next county council election or after the next presidential election or what have you. And, um, and so, yeah, it's really important to do what we can, um, you know, to help individuals and families, you know, as much, as much as possible. Um, my, my wife is a psychologist and she has this story that some of you might be familiar with that she likes to tell about there's a, um, there's two individuals walking along a beach that it, where all these starfish have washed up on the beach. And one of them is picking up individual starfish and tossing them back into the ocean so that they can, you know, breathe and whatever. And uh, the other person says, like, what are you doing? You're, you will never get all of these starfish back into the ocean. It's like a lost cause. You're never going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And the first person tosses one more starfish into the ocean and says, well, I made a difference to that one. And I think that's a lot about like the kind of work, like what mutual aid work and stuff in general is, is that like, we may not be able to change an entire system, but we can make an, a, a difference to this person and to this family. Um, and so that's, that's why I feel like it's like really important in that way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the ripple effect too. I mean, we've seen that already in our work and I, I would consider our, our hub for participatory defense, a relatively new hub. I mean, we've only been around for what, like a little over a year, maybe Mm-hmm. a year and a half um and like we've already seen that right like people bring loved ones in that they're like okay like yeah I was working on this case like related to my one you know friend or family member but like I heard that this person has a case that they need help with so like I'm bringing them in like that it it's never just one person like you're helping one person and then that like reaches to more folks and so I think it's yeah it's really powerful yeah. And, and a lot of the organizers that we know, both in our hub and then um, in hubs across the country, which we, we should, I should state that like mm-hmm. participatory defense is like a nationwide project mm-hmm. and there are individual hubs and cities all over the country. Um, but yeah, a lot of the, the most um, like uh, intelligent and like resourced uh, organizers that we know are folks who have been through this directly been directly impacted themselves or have been through that with their family members and got that experience directly and then said you know what i'm going to stick around because now that i know this stuff i'm going to like share it to the next person who comes through Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's like how it's built sorry go ahead marty what would you no worries what would you say ethan and then lydia has been like the biggest learning in participating with participatory defense like what what astounded you What's shocked you? What's saddened you? Like, what is something that you wouldn't have learned unless you like have been in this space? I suppose for me, it's, um, I think we get a really um, inaccurate portrayal of like what um, an incarcerated person is through media and TV shows and things like that. And I think a lot of people and I until relatively recently had this idea that like, people in prison, they're, you know, they're all violent offenders or something like that. And in reality, like that's such a small percentage. Like I think it's like five percentage, five percent of people who are incarcerated are incarcerated for violent offenses like rape and murder. It's like the vast majority are for are people who have, you know, nonviolent drug offenses or, um, you know, like self-defense, you know, firearms uh, offenses or, you know, warrants out for not paying fines. Um, And uh, I mean, I should be clear, I think that everybody, no matter what their charges are, deserve a vigorous and community-based defense and support. But I, it was not clear to me until I started doing this work, like how absolutely like unjust the system is, how violent it is to people who 
we don't think of as as violent how much it like takes agency away from people who we're not used to thinking of being robbed of agency in that way mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean i think i had worked pretty extensively with probation and parole so i knew the the flaws there even in my short time working um, with previously incarcerated men but to see the system from the like before um, and just how cold it is and how it just sets you up to feel hopeless and helpless um, from the jump, I think was was one thing. Um, and even just being like a third party outside, like I wasn't even there for myself or a direct loved one. Like I was there to help other community members or just to observe like Ethan and I went to a, um, oh, what was it called? That one where they like read all the names. Uh, was it a preliminary arraignment? Yeah, I think so. Um, and we went and just observed to like try to see if like there were people there that needed help and like try to, to connect with folks that were getting involved in the, the system um, and just how cold and isolating it was and how there was just such little information given to people. And they were like, you know, read out all these different dates that they needed to remember and this timeline that they had to keep like in check. And it was read once to them. And if they wanted a copy of the timeline, they could get it. But then that was it. And like that was all that they were. Um, told or given and like the their lawyers weren't there and and um I remember a different time like uh Eric another organizer and I went down to a a hearing and like just everyone was just so cold and disconnected like it was just so dehumanizing I guess that's like what it is it was dehumanizing and it it felt like because this was some of these folks like day-to-day -day lives, right? Like the security guard that sat down next to a loved one of one of the guys that we were there to support. And he was like, oh, this is so boring, isn't it? And <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? This is not boring. This is someone's like life that's hanging in the balance because they could either get charged for something that they didn't commit or they could get let go on bail or they could like, this is like life or death for people. And this is like between like the difference between this kid being able to go to college or this kid being like stuck in prison for 20 years. So like, how can you say this is so boring? And like that to me exemplified like the larger dehumanization and the larger like just vibe of the whole system was like, oh, you don't, you don't get it. Like you think these are just people to process. You think these are just like quote unquote criminals to like lock up and you don't really see them as like the mothers, fathers, sons, brothers, you know, like kids that they are. Um, and yeah, that just was really striking. But at, in that same hearing that we went to, we also had organized. So one of the things that participatory defense can do is organize communities to show up for folks because judges, it's been shown like research and, and studies have shown that like judges will make fairer sentences or more humane judgments. Um, when there are people there watching, right? Like it's harder for me to sentence someone to life in prison when their entire community is there watching me than if they're there by themselves. Cause then to me, it's like their life won't make a difference, you know, like, but when you see the community, you see the ripple effect. Um, and so when we showed up that one day and they asked like, okay, who's here like with this one person and we all stood up and there was like 20 of us and like the whole, like the person that was like the stenographers, that was, like the person typing, like all these different clerks, like audibly were like, <gasps> because there was so, like the whole room, like they thought we were here for other people, but like we were all here for this one guy. 
And that to me was like, this is the point. Like, this is why this is powerful because you can shift people's perspective. This isn't some kid that's like a bad person that has no one that doesn't matter. Like this person matters and here's all the people that say they matter. And not even all of the, like, we, this was just a small portion of all the people that cared about them. It was just the people that could make it there during the week, during a work day. Like, it's just crazy to me all the ways that the system is so inaccessible. Going down to like, you know, Marty and Ethan and I all went to the Erie County Courthouse one day to just like go walk around and say like, okay, like if we're going to be helping people, we need to know what the courthouse setup is like and we need to know where these rooms are. Like, let's just go walk around for a little while and how inaccessible the building was and how just like um, disorienting it was to walk through and like not know where you were supposed to be. Yeah. And I feel like this, the system, like for, for somebody who's going through it without support, it can be, not just isolating, but it's like something that is like happening to them. I guess disempowering is the word. So like you're kind of at the whim of the DAs and the judges and the bailiffs and security guards and the architecture of the building and all this kind of stuff. Even your own defense attorney, depending on how much time they have to give to you and how willing they are to walk you through things that it might be your, you kind of feel like you're at their whim as well. And so, yeah, that's one of the things like when we, we try to help somebody participate in their defense, like part of that is like taking ownership and saying, no, this is my defense. I know where I am in this case. I know what's coming next. And um, I'm going to like, you know, take some of that agency back and like feel like I have some kind of control over the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. You've said it perfectly. And I think that really brings us to like, can we for folks that are listening and maybe for folks that are involved in the criminal legal system themselves or have a loved one who is or have someone in their lives that has gone through this, if they if they came to a, one of our weekly meetings, so for folks that don't know, our participatory defense hub in Erie meets once a week on Zoom, um, like what would people kind of get a chance to do or explore? Like what's the meeting set up like? What would we do in a regular meeting if they showed up and needed help? Yeah, well, um, at the beginning, we kind of we kind of touch base and, and clarify to everybody that we're there to, you know, offer support in the best way that we can. Um, one of the things that we say is that uh, we, we try to support every case and their efforts to get time saved. Um, that's time reduced from a sentence or a potential sentence rather than time served. So, um, you know, in some cases, uh, we may not be able to get the person's charges dropped. But if we can help them through, you know, the humanizing them in the eyes of the system to where a 30-year sentence becomes a 10-year sentence, that's really impactful in and of itself. Um, so um, so that's yeah, kind of we, we introduce uh, our tactics and kind of disposition and philosophy towards the whole thing. And then we kind of just touch base with everybody and um, ask for any recent developments, kind of check in with folks like, um, you know, what 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 happened in your case this week? Um, you know, they might say, well, nothing happened this week, but I know next week I've got this hearing coming up. Or I met with my defense attorney and they had suggestion A and suggestion B. And um, I'm supposed to think about those things. Or, you know, sometimes it's just like, well, I was able to get this document from the clerk of courts and I'm still waiting for documents B, C, and D. And um, so we'll kind of, you know, touch base and check in with everybody. And then everybody, organizers, and then other folks who are there with their own cases will all kind of brainstorm and touch base and say like, okay, so maybe between now and next week, we'll send this email, we'll reach out to this district attorney, or 
maybe Lydia and you can meet individually and you guys can start drafting support letters or things like that. Or, you know, I'm going to go research this case law or something like that. Actually, I don't re research case law, but we have other folks who are capable of doing that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, and so we'll kind of put, put together a plan just for that week. You know, everything's kind of relatively, you know, bite side. We might have a, a, an abstract kind of large scale goal, but, you know, we kind of try to take things a step at a time to make things feel manageable. And, um, yeah, and then in doing that, you know, everybody gets to sort of see where everybody else is with their cases and sort of, um, I think that's one of the things that's really powerful is that not only are you not alone because, yeah, there's a handful of organizers who are helping you out, but you're not alone because, oh, this dude's brother is also having a case and it's kind of similar to mine, except he's maybe a month ahead. So I can kind of see what's going on with him. And, and so like everybody's kind of in it together and offering ideas and suggestions to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I think there's there's just so much information we have access to or or tools we have access to that we don't know that we have. Um, you know, so like one thing that folks come in sometimes and like on their first meeting with us, they'll say like I don't know where my loved one is at in the system. Like I don't know what what does a preliminary hearing mean? What does a preliminary arraignment mean? And like, those are very good questions because prior to going through all the training for participatory defense, I definitely didn't know what some of those meetings were. I still sometimes have to like relook up and say, okay, like, cause the wording again is like made to be inaccessible to people. So it's meant to sound confusing. So you don't quite know what's going to happen. They couldn't just like use normal English. Um, right. And half of it's in Latin. And, right. Yeah. yeah I know it's, it's wild. I mean, it's, and it's, it's intentional. You have to know, like, it's all intentional. Um, but like just even something as simple as figuring out like, okay, like what's the next step that your loved one is going through and what does that actually mean? Like, let's break it down and say, okay, here's what's happening at this next meeting and here's what you can expect. Um, because so much of it is, yeah, like being disempowered and just feeling like, okay, well, why would I even show up for this next meeting? Cause the last one I went to, they didn't even talk to us. They just read our name and said to like, come back in a week or whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, it can, can be just as powerful as saying like, here's, here's where you're at. Um, and here's what you can do next. You know, we, like we said, like we do, um, court watching, we do, um, like helping people understand like how to support their, their legal representation, you know, if their defense attorney is helpful and, and is working with them, you know, how to support that. Um, but we do a big thing is, um, doing social bio packets, um, a social biography packet, which, um, is basically like you've said, Ethan, like it's humanizing the person to the court system and really just breaking down like in very clear pictures, certificates, letters from loved ones and putting it all in a binder and saying like, no, like, yeah, I see that rap sheet you have or I see that court document you have on this person. But like, that's not them. Like this binder is them. This like this picture of them with their kids or this certificate from their graduation or these letters from all their old teachers and their family members and their brothers and sisters drawings of them playing outside. Like this is who they are. And this is the person that you are choosing like their fate. Um, and that is like really powerful and really, a, I feel blessed to be able to support that and even have a hand in helping people like, you know, draft their letters or even like read and proofread their letters is like such a blessing to be able to help support that and really grow that, that strength for them. Yeah. And, and those social bio packets, they make it clear to, to the judge and the district attorney and whoever else gets to take a look at them that like, as you said, this is a a mother, a brother, a what have you, but it also emphasizes, and, and usually this is clear in the support letters and things like that, that it, the families do time with their loved ones. Mm -hmm. 
and that one one person's incarceration is a whole family's captivity because if this person goes to jail, that could be one less breadwinner in that family. That could be one less uh, person with a driver's license who's able to drive people to and from work or school. That's one less piece person who's able to give emotional support to their children. That that's that and. Like you said, like if it's just one person showing up to court by themselves, it's just a name on a sheet or a number on a sheet, that's not really clear. And it's easy to just move them through the system like, you know, like something through a machine. But these um, in working with these uh, families to like put together these bios, we can emphasize that there's more to this person than just what you see in front of you, that there's photographs of them at their graduation, you know, photographs of them babysitting or being babysat. Um, and I think it's also like it becomes, or at least I hope it becomes um, kind of therapeutic for the families as well to like put those together, that the act of writing those letters of support or collecting those letters of support is like a realization of um, how much support that they have. Um, and it's also a sign to the loved one that, um, look like we're here, we've got you. I mean, I think like the, the story you told Lydia about the court watching is like another tangible example of that. Like, yeah, we send a message, uh, to the court with that, but it also sent a message to the individual who was facing charges. Like, look behind you, you've got all these people who've got your back. I had to walk away from participatory defense a little while ago for scheduling and personal reasons, but I heard tell that y'all are working on a, um, forgive my memory, but for lack of a better word, like a, what to do if you're arrested type sheet. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, could you walk without like giving, not spoilers, people need this information, (laughs) but without giving away all of that um, can you give people some advice or like what you think people should know? Because even in the, my short time in that space, I was astounded by what the system will try to get away with and what we all need to be aware of are our rights. Yeah. And so we've worked on a couple different things over the last like year and a half. Um, some of it is, yeah, like what to do if like I'm actively being arrested. We also have resources for like before being arrested. Like if you worry, if you already have um, a criminal record and you're kind of already being hyper scrutinized by the system and, and monitored, or if you feel like because of your race or cultural background or or whatever other factors you think play a role, like if you think you are going to be a target of racial uh, or like police brutality or racial profiling or something like that, like how to prepare and and keep yourself safe. Um, We have like a safety planning checklist, what to do after you're arrested, what to do if you're a loved one and like a loved one has been arrested. If you're like spouse or brother or family member has been arrested, what can you do? Um, And then, yeah, like knowing your rights in certain situations. Um, I think one of the biggest things that was hammered in that I think is like top of the list to know is to uh, not talk to the police without a lawyer, like don't talk at all. Um, so if I could say anything, it would be like, don't talk um, without a lawyer present. It doesn't matter if they've said that you're in trouble. It doesn't matter if they're like asking you questions, like, you know, I don't want to talk until, you know, I'm like choosing to remain silent until I have a lawyer present, um, I think is, is really important. Ethan, do you have something you want to add? 
Oh, just just yeah. Related to that is um, that one of the things I learned recently was that um, police only have to read you the Miranda rights, like you always see on TV, if you're being detained and interrogated. Um, otherwise, they don't actually have to say that to you. So, um, if you're being questioned by the police but you're not being detained, you, you can still, you know, assert that right and say, "I'm exercising my Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. I want an attorney." And uh, it's very common practice for them to, you know, kind of try to move around that to kind of just chit chat with you or say like, yeah, 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 sure. But you're not being arrested or whatever. And I mean, you may have to say this several times, like I'm not comfortable speaking until I have an attorney. No, I want my attorney and um, make that really, really clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Um we've also talked about how you have to like find this balance between asserting your rights, but also like understanding that um, especially in this day and age, like where we've seen so many incidents of police brutality, the like a lot of officers have an ego or um, get on like this kind of power trip. And so if you are too assertive or, or too defensive, um, even if you are well within your rights, like you could also be putting yourself at risk and like in physical danger. And so, not to say that like you shouldn't assert your rights because you absolutely should um but to like find that balance of like understanding that just because you're doing everything right doesn't mean that the police are going to do everything right um and hopefully they do and and there are also good police officers out there but the system is created in a way that i think um does not make it easy to stay humble in that position um and so they can sometimes yeah get triggered by people asking questions or challenging their authority in a space. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that struck me that that we've talked uh, about with folks that have been involved in the criminal legal system is about um, how to like create a paper trail or how to record things or how to like have a plan in place ahead of time that it's not just about, um, you know, reacting the right way in the moment, but like really truly taking moments to have a plan. So whether that's making sure that you always like keep your receipts so that you can say like, no, look, I have this receipt from when I went to this gas station at this time. Um, or if it's having a like a safety plan. And like I said, we have a checklist for folks like having a safety plan of, OK, if I were to be arrested, here's the number that I'm going to call. It's a, a loved one's phone number that I have memorized. They know how to help set up and put money on a commissary card for me so that I can make phone calls to other loved ones. They know who to call in the community like participatory defense or like other people that can corroborate my, my, you know, story. Um, they, you know, I, I'll make sure to like give them approval through my defense attorney to like talk, um, to my lawyer, um, like just little things like that, that, are things that we know we have to do, but sometimes if we don't think about it ahead of time, it can be so much more overwhelming in the moment when it's all happening to you at once. Yeah. And um, I think one of the things like Lydia was just talking about making that plan, um, you know, it's one of those things that like people of certain privilege um, might think and might be right in most most um, instances that like, okay, well, I don't have to worry about that. But you never know. And it's good to have those resources uh, set aside. I mean, I just saw an article this week about, you know, rental car companies, you know, putting warrants out for people who return their rental cars, you know, perfectly on time and everything. And then they just spontaneously get arrested. Um, so you never know when something like that might happen to you. And um, 
And of course, we know other folks because of their um, race or income level or whatever are more predisposed to interaction with the police um, for other reasons, for those reasons. So, um, you know, another another part of the uh, plan might be if you're work if you're encountering the police and they're they're going to arrest you, you can tell them they might may or may not respond or listen. But you can tell them if you have medical conditions and if you're at home, you can tell them I. I need to run in or I need somebody to run in and get my medicine, get my glasses, get my prescriptions, um, things like that. And they should hopefully, you know, respond to that so that you're, you know, not missing prescription doses or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, this reminds me kind of Marty, remember when we went to that death cafe and it talked about like end of life planning and how like it's an uncomfortable thing for people to think about or talk about, but that like it's going to happen to all of us. And so we need to talk about it and not to say that being arrested or getting involved in the criminal legal system is something we all will get involved with. Hopefully we don't, but we also know that it's an unjust system that targets certain people. Um, and so I think it is something worthwhile to, to say like, this might be a conversation that we all need to be having with one another and saying like, okay, like if I had quote unquote one call, like who would that one call be? And like, what would I need from them? And what would I need them to do for me? And like, what would that look like? Because um, these are important things. And like, you don't want to be sitting there later on thinking like, oh, I wish I would have like thought this through more. I wish I would have even just like told someone that I needed their help or, or memorized their phone number or something. I, I think it's, um, it's just so important. And yeah, until we fix the system, like this can happen to anyone. Um, it's kind of dark mm -hmm. um, because I've had two coworkers recently have their children. Um, this is down in Beaver County, mm -hmm. have their children um, charged or attempted to be charged and or fully charged with, um, with, um, with, whether it was throwing garbage in a way that they call destructive or the child like fought with someone and now they're being charged. It, it just, what you said is so true. Thinking about the deaf cafe and um, being prepared for the worst, even though we don't want to think about it, but it makes me sad mm -hmm. to think that so many of us should be having these converse, conversations mm -hmm. because so many of us are at risk and not one of us knows when it's going to be our time to be arrested or find ourselves helping a loved one but it's too all too common mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. listening to you two is making me think okay and Antonio challenged when I was still in the space Antonio challenged me like what are you going to do if you get pulled over and I was like I don't know mm -hmm. you know and that's something I always worry about when I'm on the highway or just driving around mm -hmm. so I don't know this conversation is inspiring me I hope <laughs> not to find myself in that situation mm -hmm. but it's inspiring me to make a plan regardless yeah yeah, I think it it's it is a dark reality and it's it like it makes me sad and mad at the same time. <laughs> like I feel heartbroken and furious that this is even a conversation that anyone has to have. Um but yeah, I mean I I think similar things like when I think about like my stepson growing up and being biracial and like all it takes is him wearing a hoodie one day and it being the summer and him being slightly darker complected than like in the winter. And all of a sudden like that changes people's perception of him and their responses to him dramatically. And like, what does that look like? And how do we like, you can only protect yourself so much. And, and like, not to say that we need to live in fear either, like, cause we should all live our lives. But yeah, I think there's so much that we can do to prepare ourselves and to be safe and to, 
and to fight an unjust system. Like the system's fucked up. It's not our faults, um, you know, but like we can give ourselves a fighting chance and give our loved ones a fighting chance. The fact that we have to prepare and the fact that I have to tell my younger brother, like, oh, you're going out into the woods, make sure you're wearing something comfortable, make sure like you don't go into people's property. Mm-hmm. The fact that those conversations have to have them happen are part of the problem. And it makes me so mad. I haven't, I'm not on social media. I haven't watched Fox News in a while. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> talked to someone who's upsetting in a while, but it makes me so upset when people literally to our faces say like, this is not, that's not real. You don't have to worry about it. You know, like, mm-hmm. I just, right. I don't know. Well, you I guys- guess I'm just processing live, like right. knowing what I know and having those fears day to day, even though you don't think about it day to day. And then also living in a world or a community where people deny that it's real for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, you know, I, I thought of this when you talk about going on somebody's property or something, Marty, that like there's so much in our system. And when I say system this time, I mean even broader than the criminal legal system. I just mean like the, you know, capitalism, American, uh, whatever you want to call it, that is like designed to be very impersonal and designed to like keep certain people away from having to deal with certain problems. You know, like, no, none of us, very few of us have to think about where our trash goes when it gets taken away from our house. Very few of us have to think about where our recycling goes or doesn't go. Um, very few of us have to think about like where our meat comes from when it goes on the table, you know, and there's, and I, the, the criminal legal system is designed to be the same way. Like there are people walking down my neighborhood street. It, they scare me. So I'm going to call somebody else to come take them away. And then I don't have to think about it anymore. And it's that same sort of thing because we don't, a lot of us don't know our neighbors, don't, um, you know, exist with a lot of community uh, and, and we're kind of scared of each other. You know, we're scared of strangers and people that we don't recognize. And so, you know, that whole thing, like if, if we were a more, um, if we were, communities, if we lived in communities that were more predisposed to collaboration towards interaction and and away from things like fear, it might be no big deal to, you know, accidentally find yourself on somebody's property and just be like, oh, hey, you know, what are you guys up to? Do you need anything? Do you get lost? You know, as opposed to be that being like a life threatening situation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like, the the work that that we've all been doing in, in participatory defense or other capacities is like a little bit of a way of moving towards that sort of more collaborative community-based way of like operating in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's so much related to also what our media exposure is to certain people. Like if we don't have direct community connections to certain groups of people or people that look or talk or behave a certain way, then all we have is the media's portrayal of them, which is why media is so important and why um, why it can be so dangerous. Because, you know, like I think about with my own work. So like I work with lots of, of black and brown folks and I work with a lot of Muslim people and a lot of people that uh, are from like Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq and Iran. And um, my perception of those people is probably very different because I know what it's like to drink tea with the family in their house. And I know what it's like to sit with a dad and help him fill out a job application. Like, and I I have so many different humanizing experiences with these people versus someone who maybe lives out in the middle of nowhere, only ever sees white people and their only connection to brown Muslim people is like 
media's portrayal of like them in like Iron Man where they're like terrorists and um, like villains. Um, and so I think, or not even in like fictional, like in like the news coverage, you know, where they only are covering, um, you know, information and in, through a biased lens. So I think it's, it's so important to think about again, just like humanizing people that like everyone is a human and everyone has a story and they're just people like they are just moms and dads and brothers and sisters and, and sons and daughters. Um, and that like very few people are actually this like boogeyman monster that we think they are, whatever that looks like, whether we're talking about people from different backgrounds or people in the criminal legal system, like, um, yeah so many of our systems are meant to divide us and make us fear someone else or make us blame someone else for our problems. Um, and it's, it's usually not the case. Well, and it also helps us miss the, uh, that like that, that system you're describing it, it's used to being kind of naive about things like violence and we, and, and it, paints people as like you're either a perpetrator or a victim you're either a criminal or you know an assaulty or whatever and and it deliberately glosses over that like well prisons are victimizers like they are they are perpetuate they're perpetuating you know physical assault and sexual assault and things like that and that it's not as simple as like uh you know these people are bad they go in here it's like well they're they may have committed an act of violence, but now they're being the recipients of violence, whether it's direct, you know, physical violence or just the violence of being separated from your family and community. Um, it's still that that sort of abrupt uh, removal of agency. And so like being a little bit more like aware of all the different intersecting levels of violence, whether it's interpersonal violence, um, systemic violence, carceral violence, poverty, racism, things like that. I wish I had written it down, but a few weekends ago when I went to that training, um, one of our members from Westmoreland named Yuki, I forgot what specific term she called it, but um, America's system is very much um, props up property above people. Mm -hmm. And because of that, whether you're a millionaire who's protecting their investments or just everyday Joe Smo across the street who doesn't like kids in their yard, um, that's what has also helped facilitate it doesn't matter what you're doing right now. You're on my property. Therefore you're doing wrong and the police need to get involved. And um, mm. I, I need to look it up and maybe next week I'll come back with what that was, but it, it was something that I had to chew on. Cause I think that's part of, is the root of so many things that mm. our investments are our, our property, our things are more important than everyday people's lives. So we're willing to destroy individuals for said things, you know? Oh, Oh, Marty. You're like hitting on a nerve that is like so deep. That is like talk about the foundations of the United States too. Like we've talked about on other episodes, like when we look at the way that that colonists uh, treated slaves or treated or not slaves, enslaved people or treated indigenous people like right, like for the sake of westward expansion, we can sacrifice the lives of all these human beings for the sake of like property, for the sake of wealth. Um, so fascinating. And that's just perpetual. Yeah, I mean, it just continues. History is so fascinating. 
There's it's all live. It's all secular. Right. Like right, slavery it's- would never went away. The, uh, no. the prison system is slavery. Right. Um, McDonald's is slavery. All these places mm. not paying you for what you're worth is slavery. While others make tons and tons and wealth that humans have never seen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah, crazy to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So before we <laughs> get too far on like all the horrible shit that god has just been always going on like i want to bring us back to the hope of it because i feel like despite the topic being so heavy despite all the injustice despite all these like layers of systemic oppression that adds up onto us and onto the people that we care about um i feel like our participatory defense meetings are usually pretty positive and they're usually like super empowering and exciting and energizing and and i think um, and maybe that's just a commentary on like the human existence and the human condition is like we are just resilient and and we are we thrive in connection. But like I just I love participatory defense because it takes such a heavy thing and it it opens it up and it humanizes it. And it says like we can we can fight this unjust system together, but we can also like joke about someone's haircut or we can also like you know talk about something total totally nonsensical or we can all have kids screaming and yelling in the background and laugh about you know family life um like there's just there's something that through it all like the the thread i think is usually pretty powerful and and positive yeah absolutely i know we also have um occasional national meetings with the, um, you know, members from the hubs around the country. And um, I don't think any of us were at, at this one in, in particular, but there was one that I'd heard about, or I think we all heard about recently where they were, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that we talk about time saved versus time served. And one of the things that the, um, the sort of national network always asks us to do is keep track of how much time saved we have. And I think the entire participatory defense network has uh, saved something like 10,000 years off of individual folks' sentences. Um, So like, yeah, when you put all of those resources together, you know, working on all of these individual cases, that's a lot of time saved. That's a lot of starfish back in the ocean. Mm, Yeah, 10,000 years. I just want to like revel in that, like 10,000 years. That's longer than these systems have been around. That's longer than this bullshit has been going on. It's longer than these systems have been corrupt. Like 10,000 years is a lot of power. It's a lot of time. We're capable of so much good when we like work together. Giving people their lives back. That's 10,000 years of lives that could have been lost. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, that's trips to the grocery store. That's like kids sports events or family game nights or family dinners. 10,000 years of like watching your family grow up and and change and thrive and struggle together and yeah oh okay i'm gonna cry if i keep thinking (laughs) it's just power it's so important you know these are people's lives affected by this this is good stuff this is good stuff it makes you you. it just yeah 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 thank you so much for the work that you both do and and Ethan for joining us today. I think this conversation is hopefully something that will take people on a roller coaster ride of emotions, but will ultimately end with people feeling excited about the potential 
for good in the world. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled thrilled to be here with you guys and, and share resources. There's actually one resource that I'd like to mention yeah. that we hadn't gotten to yet, which is bail funds. Oh, um, yes. So, um, you know, Marty asked early on, like, what was something that I learned from doing this work? Another thing that I learned was about how prevalent and how long pretrial detentions can be and how a lot of times, you know, like so many people who are, you know, arrested and who are detained are there before they've been con convicted of an offense. And so one of the resources that we have, you know, for folks who have just been arrested or for folks who are being held pretrial are bail funds, which are community organizations that uh, collect donations from folks and then use that money to help bail people out of jail. Um, there is a bail fund in Erie. It's called the Erie Bail Fund. Uh, one of our organizers, uh, Eric, has um, uh, helped start that and is and, and we collaborate with them uh, from time to time. There's also uh, a larger bail fund in Pittsburgh called Bucket, B-U-K-I-T. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so if folks are, are looking for ways to get involved and, and sort of help, you know, free people, um, giving money to bail funds is a really easy and effective way to do it. And one of the things that I like so much about bail funds is like uh, when they use money to uh, get people released, that money uh, eventually goes back to the bail fund. And so if you donate $20 to a bail fund, that's not just $20, that's $20 this time that will be reused again next time and then reused again next time. So it's one of the most um, effective uh, things you can do in terms of like organizing with your money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Thank you so much for sharing that. So... Can I ask you the R. Erie question? Yes, you can. All right. <laughs> so, Ethan, you, I remember you, um, until recently, used to commute to Buffalo for work. And I can't remember if you're from here originally, but what makes Erie your home? That's a good question. For me, it's... Um, what makes Erie like, well, I, I think it's, it's worth addressing. Yeah, I'm not native to Erie. Um, I, and I did, I moved here in 2014. So I've been here, uh, you know, uh, math, um, like seven years or so. Um, and, uh, and I spent most of that time, uh, commuting back and forth to Buffalo where I was teaching and where still a lot of my music practice is based. Um, and so always felt kind of estranged from Erie. And one of the things that made me feel most connected to the city was organizing um, a few years ago. And so because when COVID hit, I was no longer able to commute because we couldn't go anywhere. Um, and so one of the first things I did outside the house in the community was meeting folks like you, Marty and Lydia, and actually doing the organizing and connecting with other folks in the city who are like fighting their damnedest to like make the city live up to its promise and to make um, the city equitable and the, not just the city, you know, but the, the county, the suburbs, you know, make the area um, what it is. So there's so much that I love about Erie. You know, I love uh, the art and the artists. I love um, the, you know, the landscape and the weather most of the time. Um, and uh, but yeah, I think the thing that made me feel most connected to the city was uh, working with organizers. Aww. Some organizer love. I love it. Marty, it's because of you. No, it's not because of me. It's because Ethan is awesome and just somehow found us. Organizers find each other. I swear it. I swear it. For sure. Well, thank you, Ethan. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank y'all. 
You've been listening to the Our Eerie podcast. Community voices speak the truth to power. And unpacking difficult discussions. You can continue the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Our Eerie Series. This podcast is produced by John C. Lyons, Marty Nochuku, and Lydia Laith. Music produced by Light Shadow. We appreciate you for listening to the Our Eerie podcast. Until next time, take care of yourself. Keep fighting the good fight. Remember you're awesome. Thanks for listening. listening.